This is uh, Kevin Evans at Crossroads Assembly of God Church, and this is the chapter-by-chapter chapter life class uh, where we are studying Scripture one chapter at a time. And we are currently in Matthew, uh, and we are about to begin chapter 6, which is in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> and there's quite a lot here, and so unpacking things in chapter 5 took us, I think, about a month. Uh, so we're not really keeping up with the chapter-by-chapter chapter element of it. But I think now that we understand the general um, in, uh, message that Jesus is giving to his disciples, uh, we might be able to make a slightly better pace as we get into chapter 6. So, just to recap... Um, Christ is sitting probably on the bank of uh, the, the Sea of Galilee and he is speaking to his faithful, uh, his disciples and uh, people that want to be his disciples. It is not the general public who is chasing him around looking for miraculous healings. These are people that are interested in his message and Matthew has either recorded a single message uh, and took really good notes, or what this is is a combination of teachings that Christ generally gave to people, probably repeatedly. These are all of Christ's sugar stick messages, to quote my father-in-law, um, that uh, he that 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 Matthew recalls, and he want he's recording them in a logical way. Uh, either way, um, it's still uh, an accurate recording of what Christ's teachings are. Um, and Christ is reacting to the Pharisees and the current Jewish church and problems that have developed within that church. And he's telling his followers to basically get back to the basics of God's gospel. Get back to what God told them to do. And what's happened is that the Jews have become very legalistic and they follow uh, the set of uh, rules, Moses' law, and they have expanded upon that law to make it uh, even more, well, really to give them more power. So, when you have a rule, the point of the rule is to control behavior of people. So don't do this, do do that. And if they step out of that behavior and they break the rule, then there's usually some level of, of punishment. It, it's how we uh, get along with a group or a collective, as we would say in my philosophy class. Yes? Okay. Yeah. 
who made a great show of presenting their gifts in the temple and elsewhere as if they were generous and upright, but behind the scenes practiced the worst sorts of greed and immorality, that he, he was not attacking giving, but hypocrisy. How can we be sure that we are, we are giving with the right motive? One way is to give anonymously. That way our gifts will affect no one's opinion of the way one of, of us one way or the other. The matter will, will stay between us and God, and he can evaluate our motives. So you're getting so far ahead of me. I, I was about to do all of that, and you're like, doing this whole lesson, and we're going to be done in like five minutes, Ron. <laughs> that's only, that's only covering no, the I'm getting there. I'm getting there. I'm still doing the setup, dude. Oh, okay. Okay, okay. So, rules. So Mo Moses set up all these rules, and the rules are important because the rules dictate how believers are supposed to behave, and God wants us to follow these behaviors, okay? So the rule itself is not the problem. What happens when you have a rule or a law is that the, the, the human instinct is to figure out how to get around the rule without getting punished or how to make the rule work for me in my own selfish way and not work for someone else. And that's what lawyers were invented for, is to figure out how we can get around the law or make the law work for my own selfish needs. I, I, I'm pretty sure that's all lawyers do. So the Jewish nation and the temple and the Pharisees has fallen into that trap. And so these uh, priests who are born into the priesthood, they know they have to be in the priesthood from the time that they are small. They are not entering the priesthood because they are convicted and they love God. They enter the priesthood because that's the only job they can get. So there are people in the priesthood who are not very, shall we say, priestly. They're a little more on the, the selfish side than the giving side yeah, that you would expect from a priest. Yeah. So what's happened is that they are uh, interpreting the rules in their favor. They are, uh, they've added some rules to the general idea to, so that they can utilize it. So in scripture, there is one verse that suggests that, that, they, when, that when they have to give a sacrifice, I forget which one, there's a specific uh, uh, feast in which they are commanded by God to give a sacrifice. Well, sacrifices are good, right? And so the priesthood has decided to give more sacrifices than that because we need a bigger show, I guess. And so they give three sacrifices a day. They, there's, there's one in the morning at a particular time, there's one around noon, and then there's one, I think it was in six in the evening. Well, if everybody knows that we're giving these sacrifices at exactly these times, well, we should all totally pray while they're giving sacrifices at the temple, right? Wouldn't that make sense? So this isn't commanded in scripture. This becomes a tradition of the church. 
And so uh, at, at when three o'clock rolls around and that's when they're giving the sacrifice, all good Jews, wherever you are, have to stop and face the temple and pray for five minutes. So, you know, the Muslims down the road, actually this is much later than them, uh, end up having like five of these prayers. I think they got that idea from the Jews. They're, they're stopping to pray three times a day. Now, if you're a priest and you know that you're going to have to stop and pray three times a day at particular times, they make a point of being in public at three o'clock. That way they can stop in the middle of the street, stop traffic, and pray to the, 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 uh, the temple. And that way, everybody gets to see you praying and they can see what a holy priest you are. And you're an example to those other less godly Jews that are standing around you trying to conduct business in the marketplace and, and, and travel in the road. So this isn't really sincere. They're, they're getting... You know, they're using it to feed their own vanity. They're using it to feed their own reputation and their own, ultimately, their own power. So, Christ says, eventually, when I read, the, I haven't read the verses yet, Christ says, you should pray, but you need to pray in your closet. You need to not attract the attention of other people when you pray. When you pray, it's between you and God. It's not about everybody else. You should not use prayer as a big show. I'm going to let you read in a minute. Just a minute. Keep your finger there. Uh, the bottom line to everything that Christ is teaching is, and I wrote, uh, God does not look at the outer appearance of things. He looks at the inner appearance. And all the Jews were concerned with was the outer appearance. They didn't care if you believed in God. They just wanted you to follow all the rules. And if you followed all the rules, then they had done their job. They were not worried about your soul. They were worried about your actions. Christ is less worried about your actions, although that's important, than he is your soul. So he gives hard teachings like, you have heard it said that murder is illegal. I am telling you that if you hate your brother, that's a sin also. And see, that was a hard teaching because they would say, well, you can hate all you want to as long as you don't do anything bad to them. You can't kill them, but you can be mad all you want, you know. Uh, it's about the inner uh, person. It's not about your behavior. But if your inner person is, is holy and standing before God with righteousness, your behavior is going to be holy too. So it really, it just should start on the inside and work out rather than the outside and work in. Does that make sense? And that kind of encapsulates most of this message. And he applies it to specific instances. And he starts off with, you have heard it said, but I'm here to tell you. You've heard it said, but I'm here to tell you. He's basically challenging things that the Pharisees are teaching. And he is clarifying it for his disciples. And his disciples are all going, what? This was a big deal to them because it really is counter to what they've already learned. Make sense? Yeah. 
With that said, let's actually read some verses in the book. Uh, let's look at um, ver- chapter 6, 1 through 15, which uh, really gets into prayer. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets to be honored by men. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, well, actually, let's just talk about that one first. Acts of righteousness is a broad term that has to do with giving and fasting and prayer. Those are really the three things. It's, it's giving your tithes and, and alms and fasting and prayer. And they're kind of, it, it, the, the, the Jews kind of refer to those in a group. So he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. Don't let them see you. But everybody did that. That's what the Pharisees did. I am giving $10,000 to the church today because I am great and holy. And then a widow comes in and throws in a penny, and Christ says, that was a real sacrifice for her. She's really more holy than the, than the rich man is. Yeah, that's and that's the point. That's what he told Yeah. He Because to her, that was a bigger sacrifice than the 10,000 was to the rich dude. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So the Jews had this idea that when you do righteousness, you get this brownie point. And, and when you get to heaven, those are all going to be little stars in your crown. And you're going to end up uh, being a really rich man because of all those extra brownie points that you earned in heaven. So what you don't get paid for here for your righteousness, you get paid for up there. Well, Christ is basically saying, no brownie point for you. If you are, are giving so that other people can see how righteous you are, that's your reward. You're getting their reward of your respect or whatever. God isn't respecting that. And so what you want to do is build up your treasures in heaven, not on earth. And... And doing things for your own vanity is building things, it's building your treasures on earth. Um, So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets to be honored by men. Uh, Commentators really argue over what that meant. Um, There may, if this is unsubstantiated, there is no research to back it up, but there has been suggested that when people came to the temple to... um, to drop coins in, 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 in the coffers when, when they bring their tithes to the temple, which is how they did it. Uh, they, you know, here we pass a plate. There they lined up and dropped them into buckets, kind of. And they, they, they suggest that there was a tradition of a series of horns that would blow when people drop their, their, their tithes. So you walk in and, and very privately give your, your tithe, and then the, some priest blows a horn to announce to the world that you have given your tithe, and you, you can come out and know that everyone knows that you're tithing. Uh, maybe that happened. Uh, there were certainly horns that were used in the temple, but I don't know if they were really used in that way. Um, this is where the term toot your own horn comes from. 
Uh, and there may have been another kind of a non-religious tradition where they blew horns in the streets in order to get attention to themselves. So somebody's going to give an announcement, and I know this is true with the English, but not with them. When you give an announcement, you would have somebody blow a horn so everybody would turn around and look at you, and then you would announce something. You know, in the, in, the, in the West, it was a little different. You pulled out your gun, and you fired your gun in the air. Everybody turned around in a panic, and then you gave the announcement because, you know, it got their attention. Um, we don't really know exactly what their tradition was, but I think we get the idea you should not draw attention to your acts of righteousness, to your prayer, to your giving. Yeah, it's, uh, this is between you and God, and it's not anybody else's business. Right. And, and that's led to a tradition among Jews in particular of make, making sure that when you give, actually I'm confusing myself because Jews would be referring to this particular reference. I, let me rephrase. There is a Jewish tradition of giving anonymous charity. And they make a point of letting no one know where the charity came from because they want the reward in heaven, not on earth. You know, it, they're, they're, they're stacking up those crowns, those jewels in their crowns. And um, several years ago, when my wife was in, uh, actually she was in college, and she was having some issues, she was working with a professor, and she ended up staying with the professor for, uh, it was a lady, and uh, for, for several days. And the professor, uh, because had a friend, because she, she was Jewish, that uh, would occasionally give money to people who, if they thought money would help. And so they, they handled a fee for Judy. And uh, because they thought it would help, and that's exactly what that was. It was it was a Jewish person giving charity for the sake of uh, getting those almond and brownie points that tradition goes back so far for. Okay, it happens. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Not real sure what that means either. Because how does your left hand not know what your right hand is doing? When you're walking down that row um, and you're dropping your money into the pot, uh, I think the idea is that you, you drop it in in secret because you're walking down one side and I, you, you would drop it in with your right hand. Well, you don't let your left hand notice what you did. You, you, you don't want to draw attention to it. It's kind of a, a metaphorical reference. I'm guessing. I hesitate to accuse Christ of metaphor, but anyway. Um, then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. So it's about what's going on on the inside and not what's going on on the outside, right? Doesn't that pretty much sum that up? Okay, so then he gets into prayer at verse 5. And when you pray... Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they receive their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray your Father who is unseen. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This, then, is how you should pray. And Okay, well, I'll come back to it. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. Uh, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil ones. Uh, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Wow. Okay, I was, I was raised in church, Ron. I think you were too. And as a kid, occasionally the pastor would call on someone to pray. And usually a deacon. And they would stand up. And there was one deacon that I would always kind of cringe a little bit at the end of the service when they called the deacon to pray. Because he would be with our father. And then we would... It would go on for 10 minutes. It would be a 10-minute prayer where he sanctimoniously thanks God for all that he has done for us. And then we dismissed. And, you know, I was ready to go three minutes in, and he had seven more minutes of prayer to go. And as a kid, when people asked me to pray in public, I was always a little intimidated because the older kids and the adults were all, well, they were fancy in their prayer. They used phrases that I don't use in regular everyday life. And so you don't really feel like you can stand up to that when you compare my prayer to their prayers. However, that is not how God wants us to pray. God wants an honest connection with us. He doesn't want us to not be ourselves. He doesn't want us to put on a show. He wants us to just connect to him like a son would talk to a father. In all of your insecurities and inabilities and anger and, and love and everything else, uh, come to him as you are. Showy prayers are a little different. Now, I'm not going to say that there is no place for corporal prayer in church. I think we do need to pray as a group. Uh, I think with somebody is, I think we should bless our meals. I think we should remember that that meal in a restaurant is God's provision for us. And even because it's easy to think that since it, you know, I paid for it out of my paycheck that I provided that meal. But God made this possible. It is his provision. All things belong to God. And I think praying reminds us of that. And that's important. Now, having said that. Christ is saying that if you pray in public for the sake of showing off to other people like good Baptist deacons, 
well, your reward has just been given to you here on earth. You get no stars in your crown for that. That's what he's saying, basically. No brownie point for you. Uh, so he says, don't repeat vain utterings like the pagans do. Don't give recitations. Well, that's interesting because Christianity is just loaded with recitations. Uh, our Catholic brethren have memorized prayers that they repeat word for word, often as a punishment for their sins. So you, you, you repeat the, the, uh, your, the Hail Mary or the Our Father, which is we're about to talk about. And those are re memorized recitations, but it's just reciting a poem. It's not connecting with God. It's not really prayer, is it? It's punishment. It's like writing sentences on a chalkboard in, in, in elementary school. Uh, that's, that's not what God wants. God doesn't want repeated uh, recitation that has no meaning to you. He wants to connect to what's on the inside. It's not what you say on the outside and how slick it looks. It's what you mean. So having said that, Christ then immediately gives us a model prayer. He says, pray like this. After he tells us not to recite anything, he gives us a prayer that has been recited constantly for the last 2,000 years. Are we not reading our Bible? You know, I, when I was in high school, uh, I was on this football team and the coach was a Christian, but in Texas public schools, uh, you don't want to push your particular flavor of religion on your students. It's a big no-no. Lots of laws involved. But he decided to sidestep that. I don't think they don't even do this anymore. But he just decided that if we just recite the Lord's Prayer, uh, then that's not going to make anybody mad because he didn't have any Jews or any uh, Muslims or any uh, Hindus on the football team at that time. So all he had were, you know, active Christians and nominal Christians who weren't active. How could you possibly insult him with the, 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 the Lord's Prayer? So we would recite the Lord's Prayer before we played a football game. By the way, it didn't help. We were a horrible team. Uh, in any case, there were people on my team that never attended church, didn't know anything about Bible, but man, they knew the Lord's Prayer because they recited it all the time on the football team. It was part of our ritual, and that may be the only exposure to Scripture that they ever got. It's not prayer. I don't know if it was necessarily a bad thing. I think if they ever learn about God and they will have that seed in their mind and it might be useful for them to know, uh, I give the, I'll, I'll give it that. But it wasn't, it wasn't prayer. It's not what Christ was talking about. So with that big warning, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Give us our, forgive us our debts, as we also forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. I have heard it said that this is based upon the Ten Commandments. 
And it's certainly congruent, I guess, with the Ten Commandments. Our, but in, in what Christ wants us to do is take it by sections, really, and make it personal. Do what's happening in each one of these. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We want to thank God for being holy. That's the first thing. Lord, it's praise. Well, it's not even thanks. I, I, I misspoke. Lord, you're great. God, you're holy. You're awesome. Lord, we love you. Wow. That's all that is. It's, it's praise to God. We should begin our prayer with praise to God. You know, Ron, if you wanted to get in my good side, all you have to do is walk up to me and praise me with the first sentence that comes out of your mouth. Why, Kevin, you're so handsome. And you know what? I would not believe you, but I would totally pay attention to everything that you're saying at that point, you know? I think that's a great way to start every conversation, praising the guy you're talking to. Okay, it looks like you're, sounds like you're sucking up a little bit, but still, still. We want to praise God first. Then, uh, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want your will on this earth, Lord. Whatever you want. What, the, the way things are in heaven, we want it here on earth. Uh, we want you in charge. We're not in charge. Guide us in the way you'd have us go. Uh, give us today our daily bread. Now we start to petition and we, we ask for things. Lord, uh, let me eat today. Lord, Lord, help me with help me with the plumbing. Provide me, provide me with the plumbing. Lord, uh, about that flooring issue in the back room. Lord, help, uh, provide for me, Lord. And and I know that you have everything in control, but uh, it'd be really nice if you know we, we we found a solution to that flooring problem in the back room. Forgive us our debts, Lord. I've done some bad things. I've, I've done things to people that I regret. Please forgive me for those things that I can't make right. That's what a debt is. It's something you can't make right. You've taken something from someone else and you can't give it back. Forgive me for my, my debts. To mom who nursed me when I was really small and I can't do anything for her now. Forgive me for being such a bad son. As I stare at Ron. Um, As we forgive our debtors, that's the people that that owe us. So has anybody ever done you wrong, Ron? That's a debtor. Uh, You loaned somebody money and they never paid you back. I know that's happened. I read Facebook. Uh, You know, uh, God wants us to forgive other people so that he can forgive us. as I quietly examine my own life. Okay, um, let me say this. What, is for, what does forgiveness mean? Well, that doesn't help. You're defining the term with the term. Um, I, think, I think we need to not hold hate and resentment against that person for that failing. 
And I understand, you know, I, I, I've had students that have done me badly and insulted me, and, but they're students, they're kids. And I accept a certain amount of uh, stupidity out of kids. And I, there have been kids that I've been so offended with, it took me a while to forgive them. But, I'm, you know, in, in the end, I, I'm not holding a grudge. Now, if I've got a kid that's really, you know, stolen out of my desk and been a real obnoxious jerk and lies about me enough to administration that administration is actually worried, you know, no, I don't swing a paddle, uh, you know, that's a problem. And I may forgive that child for being a child, but that doesn't mean I trust them, Ron. I think you could forgive someone and still keep them at an arm's distance because they've got to earn your trust again. And I think those two things are different things. And uh, I've been accused of unforgiveness. I don't think that's true. They, I, I don't think it's true. There may be, no, I don't think it's true. I have forgiven. Uh, I think I've, I've squared that up. But the problem is the people that I've forgiven in several particular cases are not trustworthy. And I would never put myself in a position where I can be abused again because I don't trust them. Does that make sense? That doesn't mean I haven't forgiven them. So there's a difference there. <clears throat> Verse 14. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. So if you square up with those people, if you, if you ask God's forgiveness and you ask them forgiveness for things that you have done wrong, um, then God, you have to square all your relationships with man before God can have that problem with you. And it's not God's problem, it's, it's your problem. If you've got this, this hatred in your heart, how do you relate to God? You know, you can't hate your brother and love God. It's impossible. It get, that gets in the way. Uh, but if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins, because he can't. All right, any, any comment on any of that? That's pretty much, that's pretty much said there at the first 14. Okay, good. Uh, it does, um, and I've heard it quoted a lot. Let's look at verse 16, where we get into fasting, and uh, it goes down to verse 17. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show men they are fasting. I tell you the truth, they have received their reward in full. Uh, but when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face, so that it will not be obvious to men that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Yeah, uh, that's a tradition that they did that we don't anymore, and I think it is very acceptable for us to interpret that with our modern culture, okay? So here's the thing. He said fasting, uh, that what, what people would do is that they would uh, go through a season of intense prayer where they're beseeching God, and they would not eat while they did that, and not eating 
adds to that prayer and shows their earnestness before God and and it, it, it is more effective and Christ himself said you know you, you can't cast demons out without fasting or you know prayer and fasting so you have to prepare yourself and be be aligned with God in order to really be effective now having said that God knows what our problems are we don't have to tell him what our issue is and I think begging God and trying to manipulate him is not a good plan I don't want to say that prayer is not effective but I think a lot of the purpose of prayer is to align us with God not to align God with us and so what we want to do is is know what God wants and ask for what God wants which sounds kind of counterintuitive anyway with fasting uh, it just adds more emphasis to it. Now, what do you know about fasting? Okay. Uh, in our modern society, there are lots of different kinds of fasting. Uh, there is a preacher that uh, advocates uh, you know, like three to seven days of fasting on a regular basis. Uh, I've got those books, and he goes into all of the uh, spiritual ramifications of fasting, which I think are probably true. Uh, I have never fasted seven days. Um, I managed to make four. That's probably about as far as I've got. And when I refer to fasting, I mean nothing but water, uh, which is called a water fast because water is the only thing that you have. There are other versions where you give up something and that's fine. You know, uh, the Catholics give up something during Lent and, you know, that's another way of fasting. And it shows that you're focused on what you're doing and willing to sacrifice for, for drawing closer to God. Uh, there's also intermittent fasting that are used as health and weight control. And that has nothing to do with fasting in the Bible. Bible fasting is a part of prayer in the Bible. It's not about your health. Uh, there may be that added benefit of weight loss after a really long fast, but that's consequential to, you know, inconsequential to uh, what to, to what your intention was. It should not be about losing weight. Um, it should be about connecting with God and drawing peace from His plan. Does that make sense? Okay. So the pastor advocates lots of different kinds of fasts and kind of lets fasting be up to the individual and what they can manage. And I think there are some people with health conditions that it would be a bad idea for. Uh, I wouldn't recommend full-fledged fasting to diabetics. That can be dangerous. Uh, but there are kinds of fasts that diabetics can take that are still okay. Um, Daniel fasts are like only fasting from certain kinds of food. I think it's almost dieting. I'm sorry, did I say that out loud? I apologize, Internet. I don't want to. I don't want to undermine. I don't want to undermine people's dieting. Uh, I mean, I mean Daniel fasts. Um, I will say this from my experience: when you fast in my big four days, your mental processes change. The first day is not so bad. You're, you'll have little you know, cravings and cringes and you'll walk through and look in the refrigerator and remind yourself and close it again. 
if you're strong, you'll close it again. Uh, but the first day isn't, isn't really pain. It's real, none of it's really painful. It's, it's, it's about kind of an anxiety sort of feeling when, you, when, you're fat, when you're hungry. And then the second day, it's a little worse, but not horrible. But you have those cringy feelings a little bit, all that, you know, more so. And you walk in and look in the refrigerator twice as many times as you did the first day. And then you remind yourself and close it. And closing it becomes a little easier out of sheer habit. The third day, uh, the world takes on a whole new look. You're intense. That, 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 that sense of desperate anxiety is there all the time. It's not just a little craving, it's constant craving. And what you have to do is focus your brain. And what I found myself doing is, what do I need to be doing right now? Right now, what I, I need to put on my shoe. I'm gonna, take, I'm gonna take this shoe and I'm putting this shoe on my, now I'm tying my shoe. What do I need to do next? I need to pick up this shoe. I'm gonna put my foot in it. And what do I need to do? Oh yeah, I have to tie this lace because what my brain wants to do is to go, eat, eat, eat. And I have to think about what I'm doing to force that eat, eat, eat vo vo voice in my head to the back. Does that make sense? And so what I do becomes intense and focused. So walking down the hall is an intense, focused activity. Uh, reading a book is intense. And so when I'm reading, I tune out everything. People can shout at me and I will not hear it because I am reading this book. When I am walking this dog, I'm not particularly aware of the things around other than me and the dog. So when I pray, I pray intense. There is nothing but this thing that I'm thinking about in my prayer. I'm not distracted by other things because I'm forcing myself all the time to think about the words that I am saying. And I really suspect that if that is everyone else's experience, that's what prayer and fasting is all about. The fasting is about driving you to a state of focused intensity. And if you pray for an extended period of time with that level of intensity, I don't think it's God that changes his opinion. I think you change. I think your walk with God changes. Your awareness of God's will changes. And pretty much your, your needs and your wants become aligned with his. And so disciples do that for a while and they come across a possessed man and they are walking under the hand of God and they pray for that demon to leave him and he does because the hand of God is hovering over them because they are completely tuned in to their spiritual nature. That's my, that's the gospel of Evans there. So all of you people wanting to argue with me, understand you're arguing with me and not someone else. Okay, so there's fasting. And it's 20 after. Let's look at this next section. Uh, verse 19 to 24. 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth rust destroy, but where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And in the Greek text that this is written, the word for money is mammon. Um, which I think in the King James Version, it actually uses the word mammon. Does it? Uh, mammon isn't just money. It's any kind of asset. It's all your wealth. It's your stuff. It's your house. It's your car. It's, 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 it's all your stuff. And so you make, Christ is basically saying, it's, you know, he's not saying that you should be poor. He's saying that what's important is your soul don't worship these things and i think there have been many wealthy christian men who do not worship money but use money as the tool that is intended and you know and and, and they live well but not super extravagantly and uh they 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 care for other people they do what christian people do with their money and <clears throat> that's what christ wants so you want to store up your treasure in uh, uh, in heaven not on earth and I think that's pretty straightforward. Um, yeah, okay. So, verse 25, just because we're running short on time, and I would like to finish a chapter for once. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the lilies of the field grow? They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and our Heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble on his own. So, Ron, we are off the hook. We can go home, quit our jobs, sit back, and God will take care of us because we do not want to worry. If he provides for the birds of the field, he's going to provide for us, so we should sit back and wait on God's provision, right? Oh, Ron, Ron. Ron, no, it doesn't. No, I was lying. Oh, my word, he took the bait and didn't. Oh, 
Well, okay. Let's go. Let's look at the birds. Um, you know, we had a big snow, and uh, I put out bird seed, and there were a lot of birds in my backyard. I've been watching birds. Yes, there were quite a few robins involved, uh, among every, a whole bunch of other stuff, too. I saw birds I haven't seen in my backyard in a while because there wasn't a lot of food around out here in the snow, and uh, they zoomed in on me when I put all that stuff out. In any case, they were working. These are not lazy birds sitting around waiting on God to provide for them. I don't think those birds were worried so much, but they were busy. And you know, when you hear a bird chirping in a tree, do you know what he's saying? He's saying, this here's my tree, get out. It's, he's warning other birds that this is his spot and this is his acorn or whatever, and, and you need to stay away. He wants the other birds that are like him to hang around him, and he wants those grackles to please go away. That's, that's, that's what the birds are. And I know my word, they were fighting over this feed. You had all these different breeds, and they're all chirping each other and fluttering and running each other off. It looks sweet like they're playing. No, they're not playing. They're fighting over seed. And Christ uses this picture as a picture of not having anxiety. And I have a hard time reconciling that, you know, because I see dead birds. Birds, birds die. I don't think birds worry. But, and birds do work and birds die. So how do we, how do we apply this to our lives? What does he really mean? I tell you, do not worry about your life while you eat or drink or your body, what you wear. Is life not more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Well, yes. Our life and our soul, our mind is more important than food. Our body, who we are, is more important than what we clothe it in. It really doesn't matter what we're wearing. God doesn't care about our shirt. God, you know, I know clothesline Christians, they call them, because you have to wear certain kinds of clothes when you come to church all the time. And if you don't wear a tie, you're so-and-so. Or lately, if you do wear a tie, you're so-and-so. Uh, no, no, uh, God doesn't care. Either way, either way, you wear a tie or not wear a tie, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's about who you are, it's on the inside. It's not it's who you are on the inside, not what you do. And, and so, here's the bottom line, since I'm running out of time. We don't own anything. We're passing through this world in a limited brief span of time and it's an eternal world created by an eternal God and we are brief visitors in his realm. So I own a home, but it's God's home. He's the king, it's his. So if it's his, what am I to it since God owns my home? I am God's steward. I'm taking care of God's assets that happen to be within my power during my brief time on this earth. The land that is under my home was there thousands of years before I got there and will be there thousands of years after I'm gone. <coughs> it's, it's God's. Nobody owns dirt. They just don't. They can't because dirt is 
long-lived. Uh, we're visiting dirt for a brief 70 years. That's, and then we become dirt, you know? So we are stewards of God's provision. And if we can look at our own bank accounts the same way we would look at a bank account in a business where we are acting as that business's accountant, we're getting their accounts in order and making wise decisions about that money, knowing that that money belongs to the business and not us, then that is the proper approach to our own finances. We should manage, we should work, we should not ignore, we need to be good stewards, but we should not worry because in the end, God is in control and it's all his anyway. So yes, Ron, you need to fix your plumbing and you need to fix that hole in the back of your bedroom where it's caving in in the corner uh, because you are a steward of God's provision. But in the end, worrying about it is silly. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't make anything better. It doesn't make anything worse other than you. And it makes you stressed out and it separates you from God. And if you just trusted God and stop worrying, but still do your duty as a steward with his possessions, then that is what God's going to want. That, that's the true approach to how we should approach our possessions. We do not worship money. We worship God. However, money is a means to an end. There's nothing wrong with it. It's okay to be rich. You just shouldn't approach being rich as being your number one goal in life. And I'm wrapping it up right there. And I have finished a chapter in a day. Hallelujah. We are starting chapter 7.